Now, before we get there, there may be others that you So Voltaire is considered one of France's greatest enlightened philosophers and writers, inspired by the ideals of religion. He's the author of the famed satirical novel Candide, written in 1759, which is filled with philosophical and religious parody and uses an extended gardening metaphor. So hold that in mind. There's a great debate on whether Voltaire was making an actual statement about embracing a pessimistic philosophy, or as I prefer to believe, he was trying to encourage people to be actively involved to improve society. So with that as context, I give you November, Remembering Voltaire by Jane Hirschfield. In the evenings, I scrape my fingernails clean, hunt through old catalogs for new seed, oil work boots and shears. This garden is no metaphor, more a task that swallows you into itself, earth using, as always, everything it can. I lend myself to unpromising winter dirt with leaf mold and bulb, plant into the oncoming cold. Not that I ever thought the philosopher meant to be taken literally, but with no invented god overhead, I conjure a stubborn faith in rotting that ripens into soil, in an old corn that flowers steadily each spring. Not symbols, but reassurances, like a mother's voice at bedtime reading a long familiar book, the known words barely listened to, but bridging for all the nights of a life, each world to the next. And I invite you to listen to our opening song. Just as long 
Good morning and welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Karen Schofield Leka. My pronouns are per and pers, which is shorthand for person. And I'm so glad that you are here this morning, whether you're here in the room or joining us via our Facebook live stream. Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag so that we can welcome you and answer any questions that you may have about this community. We love talking about what makes it important to us, and we'd love to hear from you what it is that you're looking for. We hope you'll join us after the platform service for coffee and cookies out in the sit lobby and social hall. And please also consider sharing with us on the gold sheet that you'll find in your program your email address that lets us send you a once a week um, update about activities that are coming up in the days to come. And you can just drop that later in the collection basket as it passes in the, later in the platform service. I'd like to remind everyone to please silence your electronic devices so that you can be fully present this morning and so can your neighbors. And uh, the, but while you have it in your hand, we'd love it if you'd check in on social media. And I now invite Gwen Coat forward to read our statement of purpose so that we might hear our shared values in each other's voices. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit with, a f with faith in human goodness. We appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. If you are new to our community of children and adults, we warmly invite you to join us as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. As Gwen lights our community candle, I invite you all to join me in the candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Each week, we ring this bell in solidarity with people around the world, especially this week, we are holding in our hearts those who have been traumatized by gun violence and those for whom Thanksgiving is not a time of celebration, but rather of mourning, distress, or loneliness. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love.
I invite you now into a time of meditation. I encourage you to settle into your seat, kind of stretching and wiggling and then relaxing your body to find the most comfortable way to sit and be at ease. Close your eyes or focus on the floor in front of you with a softened gaze. Breathe deeply in and out for a few breaths. Thursday was Thanksgiving Day, a day often given to gathering with family and friends, filled with nostalgic recollections of times past, or a time for yearning for days that were or might have been. Breathe. What memories have been entrusted to you. Families pass down stories. Old friends look to one another to remember each other's childhoods. Partners house their vulnerable stories and secrets with each other. We are all protectors and sustainers of memories that keep pieces and parts of others alive. What precious memories do you hold? In the silence that follows, reflect on how you keep memories alive.
Our speaker this morning is Reverend John Crestwell, Jr., who is the Associate Minister at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Annapolis, and also founder of Awake Ministries, where he broadens the emotional, racial, and intercultural competencies of children and adults through contemporary worship, music, mentoring, life coaching, and community service. He was formerly the minister of Davies Memorial UU Church in Camp Springs, Maryland, where he assisted the congregation in expanding into a multiracial church. And under his leadership, Davies became 40% racially diverse, meaning four out of 10 congregants were people of color. John is a member of the Anne Arundel County United Advocacy Team, the UUA President's Council, and on the National Cancer Institute Intramural Review Board under the National Institutes of Health. He formerly served on boards for Hospice of the Chesapeake, the Unitarian Universalist Legislative Ministry of Maryland, where he was briefly the Director of Outreach, and on boards for United Methodist Reporter Communications in Dallas, Texas, and the UU Church of the Larger Fellowships. So, John's a busy man. <laughs> Previous to all of this, he was an affiliated faculty professor at the UU Seminary, Meadville Lombard Theological in Chicago, and also an adjunct professor of, at Potomac College in, here in Washington, DC, where he taught comparative religion, African-American history, and public speaking. So I'm sure we're in for a treat this morning. He is author of the books, Conversations, The Hidden Truth That Keeps the World from Being at Peace, the Charge of the Chalice, which tells the story of Davies Memorial's growth in racial diversity. And most recently, You Were Made for So Much More, 
Interfaith Lessons to Transform Our World. And John's also a contributing author in several Skinner House publications. Prior to his ministry, John worked in marketing and advertising. He received a bachelor's in mass media arts from Hampton University and a master's in theology from Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, DC. And he is currently working on a PhD in psychology. Reverend Crestwell was the Sunday morning worship leader at the 2012 UUA General Assembly in Phoenix, Arizona, where he delivered a sermon to over 4,000 people. John has always been committed to working with and for the marginalized and is a self-proclaimed UU evangelist. He's married to Joni Crestwell and has five mostly adult children, three biological and two stepchildren. And some may recall that Reverend Crestwell spoke at West two years ago on the limits of authenticity, tackling the complicated relationship between individuality, authenticity, and embodying the sacred. We are delighted to have him with us again this morning, and we welcome him warmly to Wes. I need to update my bio <clears throat> to take less off, to, to take more stuff off of it. But uh, thank you, Karen, for welcoming me, and uh, also thank you, Bailey for welcoming me here, and also to Amanda Poppy, your senior leader, uh, who's my colleague and friend. I've known her a long time and respect her. From day one when I met her, I knew she was a superstar. But happy Thanksgiving to all of you. I'm always torn. I love Thanksgiving because it gives me an opportunity to be with my, my family. Uh, I just got back from Colorado, so if I look a little bit out of sorts, it's because I am. Uh, Got home at 10:30 uh, a.m. and uh, was in Colorado for a week visiting my stepdaughter who lives there, and went skiing for uh, the first time in 30 years, uh, and I can still do it. I, I got it. I couldn't believe it, but I still can ski. And uh, I was worried about hurting myself, but it it was just like riding a bicycle. Uh, but Thanksgiving can be tricky because, you know, we all know the real story of Thanksgiving is a story of uh, death and colonization and suppression. And, uh, and we have to constantly remind ourselves that, you know, the land we sit on right now, perhaps the land we live on, uh, that we hold sacred, uh, perhaps was not so sacred land. It was taken from the original people on that land. And so Thanksgiving is, I'm always torn with the memory of what happened to the ancestors of this particular land. I think that's something we owe to ourselves to pause and reflect on everything we're thankful for, but also to remember that as we gain, oftentimes others, you know, lose. And uh, I, I can say that's life. Uh, I, when you study Hinduism, you learn about the God of creation, uh, the God of love and preservation, and the God of destruction. And you see that working out in your life all the time, these things happening. Uh, when it happened five months ago, and my ministry and my life changed, I, of course, wasn't, wasn't expecting it. I don't want to really uh, uh, share with you this morning and make you all depressed, but I hope to tell you a story of something that changed my life uh, that absolutely um, 
uh, gave me uh, hope in the end, but uh, going through it, I did not necessarily see that, that happening. And that was five months ago uh, when my sleepy town of Annapolis, Annapolis is a great city. When you go there, it has everything that a big city has, except everything's uh, sort of uh, a lot smaller. And you don't think that something violent can happen in your sleepy town, but it did. And five months ago, uh, an individual in my congregation who was loved by many, not just in my church, but around town, she was murdered just one mile from the congregation at 2.33 p.m. I'll never forget that day. She was murdered at the Capitol Gazette newspaper. And I know uh, Wendy uh, Winters was another victim of gun violence. Um, and unfortunately, it's not new. You know, there have been many others since uh, June 28th. And, but I, this message is about memory, and I don't want us to forget about, I don't want Unitarian Universalists, anyone in my congregation, to forget about Wendy Winters and her sacrifice. Because somewhere around 2.33 p.m., she, she picked up her trash can and her recycle bin and charged a mentally deranged man who shot her in her chest, killing her. But she died a hero. You see, ironically, we had just had an active shooter training three or four weeks before the incident. And Wendy was adamant, she was a lead usher in our congregation. To get all of the ushers and the greeters at this training, I was there. I remember her, her snarky and sarcastic comments. I remember her saying things during that training with the Anne Arundel County police officer. And so on that tragic day later in June, Wendy knew there were only three options during the mass shooting incident, run, hide, or fight, and she chose to fight. The children, uh, Wendy's children, who are all incredible, decided they wanted to have her service pretty quickly, and our church could not accommodate it. She was so popular, so loved, uh, over a thousand people came. Um, we had to move it from our church to a local, to local hall. She touched so many lives. And she deserves to be honored in her sacrificial death. Right now, there's talk about perhaps getting her the medal, uh, some type of medal of honor. Uh, the local library is uh, refurbishing itself, and people are saying that perhaps we should name that after Wendy. We had a blood drive for Wendy. Uh, one of the members of our congregation organized a blood drive, 200 and 21 people came to give blood. Bl giving blood was something that Wendy believed in and did for many years at our church. And we're about to have another blood drive again. So that will continue as a part of her, her legacy. Some good has come. But on that day, I was preparing for a memorial service of a longtime member. And the administrator and I were preparing to sit down and to go through a few things. We invited the membership coordinator to come in he had just had lunch just across the street from where it happened at the mall. 
And strangely enough, while he was having lunch in the mall, the fire alarm in the mall went off. And the public address announcer came over and said, everything's fine, this is a drill. But it was kind of weird because before we knew that something had happened to Wendy, the fire alarm at the mall went off, people had to uh, exit the mall, and it was a drill. And of course, normally when those things happen, you think active shooter. So that's the first thing I thought when Josh mentioned that. Uh, and then his phone started going off, and all of our phones started going off. And we start getting the news that there was a shooting first at the mall. And I, I looked at Josh and said, you sure nothing was going on? He said, no, nothing was going on. It was a drill. And then the uh, text alerts kept coming through, and it, it's, it announced that there were uh, injuries, fatalities, uh, but still not sure where the exact location of the thing was. And then finally, shooting at the Cap Capitol Gazette office, 888 Bestgate, one mile from my office. And the first thing all of us thought, because we knew Wendy was a dedicated reporter, the first thing we thought was, where, is Wendy okay? And so I picked up my phone, I called her cell phone, no answer, voicemail. I waited five minutes, I called again, no answer. We were all worried. And of course, that entered our meeting. My daughter was calling me, telling me to come home. She was worried. She had been home from college. After some thought, I did go home. But that began many hours, many, many hours of hoping and waiting, being unsure. So this long night of watching the local news, which was now national news, watching things play out, Facebooking people, looking for answers, not getting any. I finally reached out and called Wendy's phone again. It went straight to voicemail. That gave me hope. Maybe she was among the injured. Her daughter was heading over, one of her children, the youngest who was still living in Annapolis, heading over to the mall where they, where they actually sent the people to reconvene across the street and meet their family members. She got there, no mother. They sent her to the hospital to try to find her mother. And as the night wore on, details got clearer. And it's chilling if you go back and follow her Facebook page on that day. It's chilling reading those posts. So no one heard from her. And then when her friends began responding, asking, where is Wendy? We all started wondering, this is not good. This is really not good. Around 9 p.m., it was clear that five people were dead. And I was really worried now. I contacted one of her four children, her oldest, via Facebook Messenger. She was pretty distraught, and she said, I'm about to get on a plane to go to Annapolis. I said, do you know Wendy's status? She said. She actually didn't respond. And that told me what I didn't really want to believe. I had no word, but at 9.15, I sent a message to her ex-husband, who lives in Indiana. And he called me back. I said, hey, 
Are you on your way here? Preparing for the worst. Yes, was his reply. Did Wendy die? Yes. Silence. What do you say as a minister, as a human being, when something this bad happens? I said, oh my God. He said, yep. And then I informed my congregation via Facebook and others, ex-husband said, just wait till around 10, it's gonna be on the news. And so I texted at 10 and I watched the news at 10 and it was all confirmed their pictures. Chilling. And it makes you wanna grab those you love and show them how much you love them. It makes you appreciate life and it scares you because death lurks all the time. And we mostly accept the inevitable, but not like this. Not this kind of destruction of humanly, humanity. It's ungodly and despicable. And I can't come up with the right words, really, to say how awful this is. And it keeps happening. Human life isn't valued. Maybe it's never been as we contemplate Thanksgiving. And this has become a new normal for us. And so we have to really name the issues. I like to name things. When you, naming something gives it power. We have to name what the issues are. And I, I tried to name them in, in Wendy's eulogy. There are many ills in our society, but these are these three. Gun obsession. Gun obsession by mostly men. Violent gun acts by mostly men. White men. And poor mental health support systems that exacerbate the other two. But I want you to know I'm not anti-gun, I'm not anti-video games, maybe I should be for both. I'm not that guy, I'm a dude. I like football. But it's clear to me that progressives have a lot of work to do to force those in power or elect people in power who have the heart, the guts, and the souls to do what is right, to do what is just around gun control legislation in this country. When will enough blood be shed? We have to create systems and laws that take into account these anomalies these mentally unstable guys who do a lot of damage when they have easy access to guns of any kind. But I'm not a politician, I am a preacher. And I say that not just to you, I say it to myself because my message is really not about legislation and laws that's important. My message is always about love in all of its manifestations and expressions. 
because we can do more when we love more, when we let the light of love guide us in our work, in our relationships, in everything that we do, you don't even have to say, what would Jesus do? You could say, what would love do? What would love do? We all fall short. But what would love do? You know, the love inside. I preached about this last time I was here because, because for me, everything is a projection. And I, I like Freud and the others and Jung who talk about this. Everything is a psychological projection. Love in its many manifestations, I'm talking about the love inside of you. You see, when you analyze this neurotic man and others, the one who killed Wendy and these others, and all of the neurotic, psychotic folk out there, oftentimes you'll find that they are loners. Oftentimes you'll find that they lacked self-love He was another male living on the edges without a community to love and hold him accountable. A societal upchuck for sure. He didn't have any or much human contact and he grew sicker and sicker. Partly his choice. He blamed it on others. Often is the case with individuals like this cannot accept any personal responsibility for their issues. And maybe they can't. Maybe they are too psychologically deranged. But what would a society leading with love, how would we be dealing with this situation today if we led by love and not by fear? See, our task, we're humanitarians. That's what we do. We hold up love in all of its manifestations and expressions as humanitarians, as the highest form of divinity. And when we do that, we don't project our pain onto others. We don't necessarily uh, kill with guns. A lot of us kill with our words and our deeds. We don't annihilate another human being from the earth, but we can annihilate a relationship through our negligence. So we all have a responsibility. We're all complicit in the creation of this sort of samsara purgatorial cycle of abuse manifesting in the world. And we stop the cycle and move to nirvana, so to speak. In every relationship that we have by taking responsibility for our pains, for understanding our feelings, accepting our part in a relationship, We live in a society where everybody wants to blame. I, I, I don't, even, even the good guys, even on the good side, everybody's blaming. It's your fault. It's their fault. It's his fault. It's my fault. And I think it emanates certainly from the highest office in the land, for sure, this sense of blame. But what would love say? What would love do? Would love continuously blame and point the finger? How would love recreate our, does, how can love recreate our relationships and how we legislate? Pointing the finger doesn't make us better. 
Blaming doesn't show others that you have self-confidence or a big ego. It actually says the opposite. And so we have to help people to understand what love looks like and recognize when hurt people are hurting people. It's a cycle, palpable. And it is a contagion that threatens beloved community. Projection. We resist this toxic engagement by looking up. By looking up to all that is good, all that is righteous. We look up when we forgive. We look up when we let go. We look up when we hold people accountable to the things they say in love. We look up when we attempt to live at the highest level that the sages taught us. And more and more after witnessing this death of Wendy, my beloved friend, she was on my search committee. I understand Jesus' words, forgive them, they know not what they do. Whether it be politicians or the current president of the United States, or every young person who grabs a gun, or every angry white man, forgive them, they know not what they do. They know not what they do. And I can understand Gandhi's words even clearer today. Be the change you wish to see. Don't succumb to the noise and the distraction that wants to intoxicate you with hate and revenge and malice. The world is still full of good people, filled with generous People, I go everywhere. I went to Colorado. That's a red state. But I saw, and I was in the mountains in the middle of nowhere, I met a lot of nice people. I refuse to let the dialogue of the day direct my understanding of human beings. Most human beings are good and well-intentioned. So we must not cower in fear socially. We must amp up our love so that it can have a gravitational pull and attract the love that we are. Maybe I'm a fool. After watching the midterms and all that has transpired over the last few months, but I still believe in my heart, like a good universalist, that human beings do mean to do better and be better, in spite of ourselves that we are absolutely evolving to something more perfect. You may not see it. Of course, we see glimpses of it, that the moral arc is bending toward justice ever so slowly. We can certainly help that process, shifting our thinking, shifting from fear to courage. And as we ebb and flow, we move ever so closely to that human freedom that some generation will get to live into even more. But we must persist. We must persist in our love and our joy and our thanksgiving 
as they say, love the hell out of people. So take this love, take this Thanksgiving and this time of, of giving, take it with you in the community, take it with you when you advocate, when you petition or rally, take that holy boldness with you in your relationships, in your home, eat it, sleep it, drink it, until it becomes your reality. But the truth is, one day we will all have to say goodbye to this life quickly or slowly. Wendy had 65 years. Some of us may get that many or more or less. But Wendy lived a wonderful life, touched so many lives. A thousand showed up. We moved it, as I said, from our church to a performing and creative arts center near downtown. She had representatives from the Red Cross. She gave blood, so much blood. Girl Scouts, the First Lady of Maryland was there, Yumi Hogan. The former Governor O'Malley was there. The Orioles sent flowers. The outpouring was amazing. Nothing I've ever seen before. And Wendy wasn't an egotistical person. Quirky, weird, very different. But she was everywhere as a reporter, and she listened to people's stories, interviewed teenagers and youth for years, wrote articles about people's homes, covered their homes, went into their homes. Never judged, well, not when she was working, but she definitely had some opinions. <laughs> Just went where the story was. She was loved and respected, not for what she said. A lot of times you didn't know what she was saying, I tell you. She was a very abstract thinker. But she was worthy of a state funeral because she was a doer and liver of her UU principles. I like to say, what would Wendy do? It just oozed inside of and outside of her. Amazing woman, I will miss her. But I know she's okay, death came quickly. The night before her service, I woke up at 4 a.m. and I went outside and I took her eulogy with me and began to read it over one more time. I couldn't sleep. And that day, the previous day, was hot and muggy and you couldn't breathe. But on this night as I sat outside, there was a wind that came in. And it blew strong, it was so loud, I kept saying, man, it's windy, gonna, something's gonna hit the house. And I remember thinking, man, it's windy. <laughs> as I'm reading her eulogy. And I know you guys are uh, humanists mostly and atheists and that sort of thing, but. But I tell you, I felt the spirit of Wendy was there in that moment saying to me, I'm okay. You better not screw it up. How will you be remembered, my friends? Will they say you were thankful and generous and kind and compassionate, forgiving, curious, and 
supportive, a person of integrity, a light in the shadows, a giver, a lover of life, a free spirit, an enlightened soul, what will they say about you? <clears throat> that you didn't smile, that you were angry all the time, that you couldn't let go of the small stuff, that you kept to yourself, that you didn't really want to be on this planet. What will they say? It is your choice. We are all in the business of saying hello and goodbye. And mastering this means for me that you master life. You want to master life, start today. Rededicating to, your, to, to every hello and every goodbye. And remember the people, places, and things that give your life meaning and purpose and dedicate yourself to it. I, I close with words that humble and inspire. Words that many share at a wedding. Words that you may or may not remember. But I hope you remember these words. Hear them as I close. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Thank you for your time this morning.
both sides lose and no one gets anywhere 